Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Science Faction. The only show where a scientist, a comedian, and a comedian scientist come together to discuss science. Comedically. Hello, and welcome to Science Faction 624. Science Faction, the solved mystery of the Southern Ark and how to vaccinate against misinformation. Vaccinate against misinformation. Like, like, is it like one of those things you learn in like a, like in elementary school? Like, uh, a book is the best way to vaccinate yourself against ignorance. That sounds like something like a library you'd hear in a library. Yes, but did, little did they know that uh, we were interpreting it to be porn, which is yeah. technically a book. Like, if you back in the day, it was it was in binded fashion. It could be considered a book. Uh, we considered that books, and so we're like, yes, this really is changing our lives and our perspectives and vaccinating us against unhorniness. <laughs> yes, I, I, not that a teenager needs help having an erection in class. Not that that no. needs any aiding. No, but we should support them every way we can. I, I also like the thought of Bobby doing that thing that was only done in like TV cartoons where like Bobby pretends to have his textbook open, but is actually as like a full spread of Hustler. Yes. Yes. You know what? They always seem to ignore in that scenario is all the kids behind you. Like every single kid behind you is going to be looking at that book. And even if you're in the most like we don't narc on kids school on earth, the teacher is going to look back and notice that literally every boy that is seated behind you is staring at your textbook, which supposedly is just about algebra. Okay, okay, first off, I couldn't do it for that exact reason. You could, because you were in AP class, and all those nerds were yeah. hanging on every word the teacher said. You could have done, you could have, <laughs> you could have had your dick out, and the only person who would have uh, noticed was me, the teacher. Yeah, could have. <laughs> and speaking of the person on this podcast with their dick out, I, of course, am your host, comedian archaeologist Robert Timothy. With me, as always, my comedian, Mr. Damien Mercado. Damien, how are you doing this afternoon? I am doing great. By the way, I mean, to our younger listeners, does the thought of having like a pornographic magazine inside of a classroom seem odd? Yeah. Is that like, is like, I, that was something that could have theoretically happened when Poppy and I were yeah. there. Like, well, why could yeah. you just not looking up porn on your phone? It's so much easier. Nobody yeah. would know. Oh my gosh. Oh, you <laughs> sweet summer child. <laughs> yeah, I'm browsing, I'm browsing hentai while the teacher's talking. Well, who gives a shit? <laughs> Unfortunately, that hentai bit is committed to tape. It is on audio. It has been it has been absorbed. And if you want your own custom science faction hentai, go ahead and check out our Patreon. Search Robert Timothy on Patreon, <laughs> and you will find something that Damien and I lovingly refer to as audio hentai. I mean, first off, would you realize like how much cultural appropriation we would have to do to sound like Asian girls? Uh, like, like horny Asian girls. And by the way, our friendship has gone to a lot of places. This would be a new one. Yes. This would yes, be a new true. one. <laughs> yeah, we've done horny Icelandic girls, but that was for something completely different. <laughs> jaw, give me your walrus penis, Jaw. <laughs> that was the best Bjork concert anybody has ever been to. <laughs> I can still remember Hilda. <laughs> She's a part of me now. <laughs> All right, let's move right on to science articles from molecules to particles this is science articles article number one 
Most exciting ancient DNA study in history reminds us white people aren't real Europeans. Aren't real European? Like, who are the real Europeans? I'm curious who the real Europeans are. Because, like, is there, like, a whiter person that went extinct? <laughs> that, 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 the, that the Caucasians that we know of? Was there, like, a, a race of albinos? Or is it Neanderthals? Were Neanderthals the real Europeans? And we Well, I guess that's, that's actually one argument there. No, and, and as we've discussed a few times on this show, interestingly, light skin didn't actually predominate in Europe until like a few thousand years ago, like five or six thousand years ago. Before then, we would see people like Cheddar Man who would have blue eyes, but still dark skin and stuff. And so that's, that's actually a much more recent thing. No, but we've talked about this a bunch on this show. It's actually one of the things I tell people about when they say, oh, you've hosted a science show for like 10 years now. What's the thing uh, that you like to tell people to surprise them the most? And I said, I don't know if this is as surprising but it certainly is very validating to inform anybody with like white supremacist tendencies that there are no such things as like real Europeans. They've all been extinct for a long time because the people, the hunter gatherers that occupied most of Europe were completely wiped out by Anatolian farmers, basically people from Turkey one time in one wave, like, you know, 7,000 years ago with farming another wave with like 5,000 years ago with, with, uh, herding animals. Basically, Almost all of the DNA of European, especially Western European hunter-gatherers that was in that area was was pretty much replaced and wiped out. Like, those motherfuckers, they're long gone, long dead, and we're all just Turkish people pretending. They're, they're all the the, the uh, agricultural farmers who were uh, fleeing the steppe people of Turkey. Uh, yeah, well, they were the steppe people themselves. So this is actually super interesting. So this, this gets into a bunch of things, everything from genetics to archaeology to linguistics. We talk about how all of Europe, save Finnish and Magyar, are Indo-European languages. In fact, those European languages extend out of Europe. Uh, they extend into Asia, Asia, South Asia. The Hindu languages of India are Indo-European languages. And we have known for a long time approximately where and when those languages kind of came from when they split off. But this genetic evidence kind of reverberates that and shows us that this one group of people, the Yamnaya, which were around like six, seven thousand years ago, kind of north of the Caspian and Black Sea in the steppes, the big wide open area that would later give birth to the Mongols and all those other people. This Yamnaya group was the original speakers of proto indo European and their spread gave us basically all the languages that you are familiar with from Europe or parts of South Asia and stuff. It these one group of people were so fucking successful that their languages not only spread on to dominate all of Europe and parts of South Asia, but then through colonialism thousands of years later, they have been dominating places like the Western Hemisphere that speaks Spanish and English and Portuguese and all of this. Basically, most of the world speaks languages from this small group of people that ended up conquering fucking Europe. You know, it's all, it's, it's Dr. Jordan Peterson here, Bobby. And, and, <laughs> oh, goddammit, Peterson. <laughs> and when you, when you chip away at the identity of Western race theory, it makes me want to cry. But I hold on to the superiority of Western civilization started back to the Romans. Oh, it's funny because we're actually going to talk about Roman DNA in this study. Oh, fooey. <laughs> so this is a giant ancient DNA study. We have talked about ancient DNA studies before. We covered some of the first ancient DNA studies ever done on this show. And it was like, we compared the genomes of three ancient people. It's the biggest ancient DNA study ever. 
So just to give you some perspective what how far we've come in the last few years, this study looked at 727 individuals between about 10,000 BC and 1700 AD, and we got the ancient DNA from them. So our ancient DNA studies are now in the many hundreds of individuals as opposed to like, we've almost got to a dozen. Progress. That's what we're seeing. <laughs> So super, super interesting. Not only was this a gigantic project, not only is this far and away the biggest ancient DNA project ever done, not only does this completely open up the entire history of Europe, but it's also was done over COVID as a coordination between multiple labs on like three continents and a bunch of different countries and shit. And yet they managed to get all of this shit done during a global pandemic in which you have to share information and work together in order to make all this shit work. And it, it just an absolute amazing James Webb type conglomeration of work from different types of researchers, from archaeology to genetics to blah, 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 all did this over the entire course of the earth during a pandemic over the course of years and revealed three published papers that came out this week in relation to the data set that was created. I want to uh, uh, bring up a story from our past, Bobby, on this that kind of uh -huh. relates to this. Sure. If you know anybody who is, yeah, as Bobby said, is uh, has a little bit of that um, uh, uh, Western civilization, white people are, you know, superior, yeah. uh, you know, kind of like the cornerstone of a lot of conservative thought. Point is, my first girlfriend when I got out of the army was this uh, creationist girl, you know, she was very conservative, you know, she, her family totally hated Obama, for, but totally not for any race reasons. <laughs> um <laughs> But <laughs> she did once show up, I think it was with her brother or something in a lifted truck to like something that we were doing. And, uh, and I remember that we were like waiting on her to, we were at a park and we were like playing flag football and we were waiting on her. I don't think she was your ride or something. And I had met her a few times and was not impressed. And, uh, you said, uh, she's going to come pick me up. She's coming with her brother. And we could see like a mile down the road. And I looked a mile down the road and saw like a four foot lift on a Chevy Silverado and looked over and went, she's almost here. That's yeah. her. She's on her way. Yeah, I, having no knowledge of what she drove, what her brother, I just diagnosed the situation. There are a hundred cars going down this road every minute. I was able to look down the road and say, that is the woman you are currently dating. Yep. When you, uh, her brother, man, when you get a, uh, a pipe fitting apprenticeship at 19, you got to show the world, man. You got to, you got to lift that truck. <laughs> You could walk underneath it without ducking. Anyhow, uh, Bobby pointed out to her because her family like really took took pride in in their Irish heritage, and Bobby pointed out that you know you know the you know you have a lot of ancestors. You know, not let's just let's just ignore all the the branches. Let's just focus on one sure. of the many people, like one line of people, the Irish one you're saying, or one of or the Irish ones. You know, like, that's just a particular point in their history. You know, if you go further back, eventually, you know, if you keep going back, uh, you know, they're on the mainland, before Ireland, they're on the mainland of yeah. Europe. Then they're in Turkey. Then they're, you know, in Mesopotamia. And then yeah. they're in Africa. You're being very selective about, you know, which ancestors you're proud of. And she got so offended. <laughs> she was visibly offended that I had brought up the, the possibility her family was from Africa. And by the way, you, you did a, good, a pretty good job of pointing out my point. But my other, the, the initial part of that point was like, your family's been in America for a few hundred years. Then they were in Ireland for some blip. They were probably British and English and all of And then they were before that. So, so yeah, you're picking one really weird, specific, narrow thing that doesn't seem to relate to who you are at all. Because again, who you are is shaped by hundreds of years of American ancestry. 
Yeah, like, again, if you went to Ireland and you claimed to be Irish, what the fuck do you think they'd say? Like, oh, yeah. really, what do, what you do to a Protestant? I'd probably yeah. vote for him. <laughs> Are you for president? I don't understand. I... <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. It is funny to watch uh, racist people get super angry when you mention that we're all African at heart. Yeah. But I mean, like, that's, that's, if you do have anybody who says that, just point that out to them. You know, provided that uh, calling them black, apart from insinuating that many of their ancestors, if you go far back enough, were black, if that doesn't piss them off, but if, they're, but if they're like the type of person who's like a reasonable person, I feel like an argument like this would really push them in the right direction. Maybe, maybe. So it, very, very interesting. They found a bunch of interesting stuff. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the three papers that were released. So here's a quote from the article about the first paper. In the first paper, the international team investigated the homeland and the spread of Anatolian, which, by the way, is a synonym for Turkey. So these are people from Turkey. Anatolian and Indo-European languages. The genetic results suggest that the homeland of Indo-Anatolian language family was in West Asia, with only secondary dispersals of non-Anatolian Indo-Europeans from the Eurasian steppe. At the first stage, around 7,000 to 5,000 years ago, people with ancestry from the Caucasus moved west into Anatolia and north into the steppe. Some of these people may have spoken ancestral forms of Anatolian and Indo-European languages. So this is interesting because it kind of coincides with some of the linguistic evidence. They're comparing the linguistic evidence and the, the genetic evidence. So that group that we're talking about, that became a, the group that we now call the Yamnaya. So returning back to the quote. As they expanded, descendants of the Yamnaya herders admixed differentially with local populations. The emergence of Greek, Paleo-Balkan, and Albanian Indo-European languages in southeastern Europe and in the and the Armenian language in West Asia formed out of Indo-European-speaking migrants from the steppe interacting with local people and can be traced by different forms of genetic evidence. Meaning, the Yamnaya came in, they they bred in with the local people, and they mixed their languages to create the Indo-European languages of those areas that we know now. However, that is a different pattern than we see a little bit further west, and they're going to talk about Italy here in a second, but we see this later too in, in places, uh, other parts of mainland Europe. Back to the quote, in southeastern Europe, the Yamnaya impact was profound and people of full Yamnaya ancestry came just after the beginning of the Yamnaya mag migrations, meaning... They came to Greece and all those places. They bred with people. They created their own language. They did their own thing. They come to Italy and they just fuck it up. They're like, get the fuck out of here. We don't want any more Italians here, which who can blame them. But they basically just uh, completely replaced the population that was there. So the Italians, they are the rebellious sons or the or, uh, uh, prodigious sons. Rome, the Romans were the prodigious sons of uh, the, these, these Turkish people. These Turkish... Yeah, well, they, well, no, no, not Turkish, Yamnaya, which are this, like, steppe people. Now, these people did come into Turkey and, and, and stuff, but what we see, actually, is one of these tests that was quite surprising shows very little re-influx of steppe DNA back into Turkey. The, the, the actual emergence of the Yamnaya people were undoubtedly from some Turkish stock, but it looks like they didn't come back at any point, which was really surprising. We did not expect to find that in the genetics, but that was one of the things uh, the genetics showed. That's why they were able to defeat Hannibal and his Alps. It's because they yeah. too were a step people. <laughs> Sometimes when people say step people, like I understand what they mean, obviously people from the step. Step aerobics instructors. Yes. That no, I, I, I think of the movie Step It Up. 
or or like I think of <laughs> is that Nick Cannon or or whoever's in a dance yeah. movie? <laughs> yeah, I, that's what I think. I think about like real ancient groups of people getting together for intense dance offs. Okay, so like in this in this war, that's why the Romans they when they when two armies would meet for a dance off. Uh, the Romans were from, they just had these badass step moves that uh, these ancient tribes couldn't compete with. <laughs> uh, so secondarily, they found that for whatever reason, though those, those Yamnaya step people were formed from some Anatolian stock and some other stuff that, that, that went in, they didn't seem to re-come back into Turkey. So are saying that they were quote-unquote Turkish people the whole time is actually somewhat misleading. Step people would be more accurate. Some, uh, some Anatolian DNA in there, but they did not actually seemingly come through Turkey just based on the genetic evidence. Again, huge surprise, not what we would have called based on linguistic evidence. And thirdly, very, very interestingly, they they found that the genetics of like Roman era Romans, literally the people who lived in Rome at the time, were like really similar or, or identical to the genetics of people who lived in Turkey in the Roman Empire at the same time. And like that was really surprising too, because we thought it would be, we thought like, oh, certain places obviously are cosmopolitan in the Roman Empire, but for the most part, you're going to have a lot of just like embedded native genetics. And it's like, no, when we look at this genetic profile, if you snatch somebody out of Rome and, and then someone out of like Roman Turkey, like Istanbul area, Constantinople, you snatch two people out of those areas and uh, from the Roman period, and then you look at their DNA, you're not going to be able to tell who's from where, and that's fucking shocking. Like Romulus and Remus were like two dudes who owed a lot of child support in Turkey, so they uh, moved yes. to Italy, founded Rome, made up some bullshit about wolves, and... Uh, <laughs> I come from the steppe, don't tell anyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, uh, I'm, uh, the wolf raised me. Yeah, it's crazy. I got a brother. Yeah, yeah. Oh shit, that guy dances like real well. <laughs> the guy dances like he's trying to get out of child support payments. <laughs> I don't know what that means exactly, but... Oh, dear. So, long story short, super, super interesting, big genetic study. Solidifies some of what we knew about Europe, early European migrations. Turns around some of the stuff we knew about early Europeans, or thought we knew about early European migrations. But more importantly, this hints at something that I've been saying for a while, which is, as we get more and more of these ancient DNA studies, and again, five years ago, we were talking about three being the biggest number. Now we're at 727. As we get more and more of these, and they, get, they start to filter out, we're going to learn a fuck ton about the human migrations that have created the modern population. If you continue to do this and we continue to get DNA, you could theoretically have a world in which we get like a history of humankind that's almost down to the individual. Like we won't know their name, but they're like, we'd be like person BA-127 moved to this area and made it with QR-129. Like we are getting so much information. Could you imagine having anything like this fidelity of information even like 20 years ago? It'd be crazy. Just the ability to know all this, this stuff that is embedded in our blood, but is otherwise unknowable. Just, just fucking absolutely crazy. And we will see a future where so much more is known about the past. Things we couldn't have even imagined to have known before we will have detailed knowledge of. And it's just awesome to see it happen. All right. On article number two. How to inoculate social media users against misinformation. Crucify Alex Jones in like a public hearing where like he's like flayed alive as an example to all other yeah. disinformation advocates. Listen, I'm immortal. All the skin's growing back, but this really smart. I know I deserve this. 
I feel like it that would uh, like have the opposite intent. Like I feel like if you're conspiracy theory minded, watching somebody else be punished for the admittedly bad things they do because of their conspiracy theories would just reinforce your conspiracy theories. What could we do? I mean, like, what could we do to Alex Jones? What torture would be appropriate that you think? I thought, I got it. I got it. They, they, they'll put me in a big old, a big old tank, right? They fill the entire thing with like nine and a half feet of chili. Then they put me in there. Now the walls are slicked down with bacon fat, which I enjoy. I like licking walls and people who know me know that about me. But like after the first two or three hours of wall licking, I'm getting tired of treading water. And I realize that's where the trap really is. Because I'm in this chili and I'm just slowly sinking the entire time. But every time the chili gets down to my mouth, like I'm about to, to die, I aspirate chili, realize how delicious it is, and get the will to live again. And so then I pop back up. And it's like a serial killer who takes the pleasure in choking their victims into unconsciousness, allowing them to wake up and then doing it over and over again. Except my serial killer is Lady Chili. And I have wandered into her den. <laughs> that almost... If you took away the part where he was able to get chili into his mouth, that almost sounds like like a Sisyphusian torture. Like every time he lowered his mouth in the bowl of chili, the chili would recede. <laughs> no, no, uh, it's better because he wants to die. He's so tired, he wants to die. And then as he's sinking down, he tastes the chili and he's like, I can't die, I gotta eat more chili. It's, it, it is Sisyphusian. <laughs> Oh, man, what's that, nutmeg? Man, I gotta keep going. <laughs> so this is a very interesting paper, and it came out about the possibility of inoculating social media users against misinformation. So, why is this important? Well, we are living in one of the biggest misinformation times in history, probably the biggest, and that is causing a divide in our general populace, one that gets bigger and bigger with the amount of that disinformation that gets spread, because the further we get away from reality as we each go off on our own fucking fantasy lands into why the other people are Hitler, every time you do that, you're just getting further and further away. And so the more you can rein in that misinformation, the more you can stop the polarization, the more you can stop things like people going and shooting pizza parlors thinking that there are kids in there like all of that kind of stuff can be mitigated and quite frankly i think misinformation is the most important least talked about thing in our modern society that is causing so much trouble but nobody seems to address it head on we can say oh there's a problem or we know facebook has been doing this shit but it's like bro, we're losing democracies and, and nations are falling. Like, this is a big deal. And it seems to be like page seven of the, the Wednesday Post. This is why I, I truly hate the people in the middle, like educated people. Like, like if we wanted to, if suburbia, if, if people who are like educated, who kind of who kind of see something wrong, gave a shit about this problem, it'd be fixed tomorrow. Because really, this is this is a, a very loud minority. Like maybe, you know, like let, let, let's say every Trump let's let's be generous and say that every Trump voter is one of these people. That's still like only 25% of the population of America. And we could drown them out. But I hate the people in the middle who do, who like hear this, like both sides are the same. Democracy is crumbling. But hey, both one side wants to give you health care. The other side is literally tearing down democracy. But I mean, look, there's probably a bunch of misinformation that you yourself believe because it comes with the political group that you're with. And that, that tends to be for everybody. We tend to give ourselves leeway to believe bullshit when it's on our side. And that's one of the problems. It becomes a side thing. My side versus your side, as opposed to let's look at what the actual facts are and discuss those issues. It becomes a team's thing. But I, but I would argue, though, that 
when one side basically adopts fantasy, you know, it's not like, hey, you know, sure. my side's like, hey, I'm I'm advocating for reality. I'm my side is pro reality. Your your side is pro LARPing. But is that always true? Like, that's the whole point. There absolutely are times where your own side is putting out tons of misinformation, where your own side is doing it, but you are more likely to believe the misinformation that your own side puts out. I, I, you know, that's on one hand, yes, I do know some people like I, I know, a, I know of a couple of people who just don't believe uh, that, you know, their heart's in the right place. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they, they want things to help, but like, you know, I can't shake them that, uh, uh, that they think that population science is just elitist bullshit. They don't believe like, like the earth has a finite amount of fucking space. And sure. like, uh, it's frustrating talking to this guy, to these yeah. guys. So, yeah. uh, because like nothing I say will, will get through to them. And I know that there's a lot of like, bu- I'm, you know, a lot of bullshit amongst like uneducated people on the left, people who are like, you know, oh, big, big pharma, Monsanto, I believe in all natural homeopath. And since a lot of times political issues do become virtually virtue signaling, people aren't always using skeptical mindsets. You know, if you are predisposed to believe a certain political belief and somebody reinforces that belief, you have less skepticism about it. So that is the important part of it. But let's talk about what this group is and what do they do? So this group is called Jigsaw, not after the horror villain, uh, but is actually a part of Google. And they wanted to use a a technique called pre-bunking. And pre-bunking is when you predispose somebody to not be susceptible to things like misinformation by informing them of something or teaching them uh, logical fallacies. And while they didn't call this logical fallacies, a lot of this seemed to be looking at things that stem from logical fallacies. They wanted to expose individuals to tactics that were used to trick them, whether those were ad hominem attacks or false dichotomies or emotive language. And they would use clips from popular media like Family Guy and Star Wars to show manipulation techniques like scapegoating or deliberate incoherence. But they would do so without attacking specific beliefs as being true or false. They wouldn't say, look, here's a true belief, here's a false belief. They would say, here's how to tell when somebody is trying to convince you of something that isn't true. And then they worked this program out, kind of tested it on people, and then wanted to see how it worked, quote unquote, in the wild, like putting it on YouTube ad stuff. And when they did that, it was really interesting because they showed people these kind of like quick YouTube ads about, you know, the ad hominem attacks or whatever it was. And then 18 to 24 hours later, they would contact them and have them fill out a survey. And they saw about a 5% improvement in acceptance of misinformation and being able to tell misinformation from not misinformation, which while we don't necessarily have baseline numbers, seems to be a huge improvement for a one-time 30-second intervention on a YouTube ad. So super, super interesting. Also interesting, by the way, here's a quote from the article. The inoculation effect was consistent across liberals and conservatives. It worked for people with different levels of education and different personality types. This is the basis of a general inoculation against misinformation. Very, very cool. I am so excited when stuff like this comes out. Obviously, the whole point of this show is to communicate science to the general public. And one of the hardest parts of that is getting over misinformation. Hell, that was half of my COVID episodes that I would put out where I was debating with people in the comments about how it's not total bullshit. Misinformation is a huge problem. In in our current situation, misinformation can literally kill you based on, you know, disease transmission. We need to fight it and we need effective tools. And shockingly, there's way too little research on how to do it and what tools are effective, especially research that, that would hold over to the modern era of social media. And this is a huge study that does seem to do that. 
Hopefully we can start making types of videos like this, getting them out to the general public and just getting general awareness of bad thinking, logical fallacies, etc. Sorry guys, Damien had some data problems and cut out uh, partway through that second story. So we'll get back to him next week. But for now, thank you so much for coming back for Science Faction 624. You've been listening to Science Faction. Wait, that's not right.